welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This is the show that's going to give you confidence, clarity and connection in this wild ride of motherhood. Today, I'm chatting to the wonderful presenter and author, Cherry Healy. This is a really special episode for me because I remember watching Cherry Has a Baby way before I became a mum and I just fell in love with her. She is one of those women that you just want to be friends with. She is smart, honest, funny, and she's pioneered women's health and issues for decades in her TV work. We chat about why deep down do any of us really feel good enough? We chat about boundaries, worth, purpose, and why we devalue what we're naturally really good at. I think you are going to love this one. Here it is. This episode is sponsored by The Night Owl Sings and their new album, The Night Owl Sings Nursery Rhymes. So we all know how tricky bedtimes can be, don't we? My youngest, who's nearly four, always asks me to sing lullabies to help her drop off. Well, recently, I've been giving my voice a much needed rest because I have discovered the calming music from The Night Owl Sings Nursery Rhymes. Have you ever searched lullabies on Spotify? Because I have, and it's not great. It's either panpipes or squeaky cartoon voices. Not ideal. So the Night Owl's newest album called The Night Owl Sings Nursery Rhymes is 10 beautifully sung covers of popular songs in a soothing lullaby form, followed by a soothing instrumental piano version. The concept's based on the story of the night owl, a nocturnal bird who's scared of the dark and whose mission it is to help the children fall asleep by flying down from her perch and singing lullabies to send them to sleep. My little one loves it and has been dropping off much easier, so why not try it out for your little one's bedtime? Just search The Night Out Sings Nursery Rhymes on Spotify, Apple Music, or your usual streaming service, or you can click the link in the episode description. Cherry, I am so excited. I was just saying, it feels like a weird beautiful full circle life moment because way before I was a mother or even thought about motherhood I watched your unreal landmark documentary Cherry Has a Baby and I fell in love with you a little bit and I have loved all of your documentaries so many of them actually really pioneering in terms of things that we talk about a lot more these days the reality of birth the reality of motherhood menopause women's health you've been talking about for 15 years. Thank you. What a lovely thing to say. It's made me feel all warm inside. I really appreciate that. And I love that you love the show. But at the time, I don't think I really knew. I knew it was a big deal because I remember saying to my then husband, oh my God, I want to make this show and this is what I want to do. And I remember having had some quite stressful conversations about it. So I knew it was a big deal. At the time, I didn't realize the significance of it. But I do now. And I think I'm proud of myself for being brave enough to do it. And I feel incredibly lucky to have been given the opportunity to do it by a very forward-thinking commissioner called Danny Cohen at BBC Three and Harry Lansdowne. And they were really forward thinking and they were commissioning stuff that no one else was commissioning, hadn't even thought of, you know, um, female leaning projects. Because the idea is men will watch men's programs and women will watch men and women's programs. So why not just make men's programs? Because then you've got a bigger audience. So I was really, gosh, so lucky. It was really right place, right time though. I can't even tell you. Right place, right time. And I loved it. Just going to go and chat to women about their experiences of life. That wasn't done very much in those days. No, particularly not around motherhood, which was like, oh, no one cares about that. Girl stuff, blur. They might mention the word periods, blur. Why do you think it had the impact? I'm sure people still come up to you now in the street. And I love it. Some people are like, oh, do you get annoyed when people stop you in the street? I'm like, A, it hardly ever happens. And B, when it does, it's a delight it's almost certainly one of two or three shows that I've made that have struck a chord that's like lovely it's a lovely thing to hear and when did I think it was a thing I think it was like five years after making the show and I'd made quite a few other things I'd been loads of other things at that point and it was that one that was one that really had an impact and I think because it was the first time that women saw a woman like them on telly, not a supermodel, not someone with enormous boobs and perfect teeth, but like someone that just feels like the girl you hang out with. And I didn't get it at the time, really, but now I do get that. And 
I want my daughter to grow up watching girls, women like that, because that's actually real aspiration. It's like, oh, I can be open about my periods. I can be open about being scared about having a baby. I remember, I mean, even now I'm a bit like, oh, I can't believe I said it. But at the end, I get piles. (laughs) Of course you do. Everyone gets piles in pregnancy, right? But I remember saying at the beginning of the program, like the one thing I don't want is piles. I can deal with all of it, but I just don't want that. And then at the end of the show, I think maybe I say, I can't remember what I said, but I did get them because I was lifting furniture when I was heavily pregnant. What a moron. And I got them. By the way, for anyone listening, they go away. They have never reappeared. So don't worry. It's not like a life sentence, but it's nice to hear women being honest about the honest. And we are now in a world where we can do that a lot more. But I think at the time, wasn't like it was now where everyone's celebrated for sharing their deepest, darkest stories. I love it. I love the way that it's so much more celebrated to bring that vulnerability and that honesty. I love it. I absolutely love it because I feel like the moment you realize that it's not just you, it just completely changes. It stops you doing that, you know, women self-silence. So when we think it's just us or we can't hear those stories, we decide that we're wrong it's our fault. I'm doing lots of work in the women's health space at the moment and about the gender pain gap and reading some of the research about women being turned away is really shocking. Waiting lists for women who've got gynecological questions, issues, pains has gone up 225% in the last 10 years. That is the difference between someone being seen by a consultant within a month, two months, or having to wait nearly two years And by that point, if you have got abnormal bleeding and maybe you go to the doctor two times, three times, and then you've been told, you know, oh, it's nothing, you stop going to the doctor. So how many women have gone home and they haven't persisted and then they've ended up with something really, really serious? So it's kind of like a matter of life and death and women get silenced. They did a survey, the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, I think it was them that did the survey of tons of women and 50% of women said, and girls said that they'd been ignored when they had gynecological problems. It's a big problem and it is things like endometriosis. Before I started this work, I'd never even heard of it. And it's as common as diabetes. And yet it's really, you know, people don't know it. They don't, they've not heard of it. And then when, if someone says they've got it, I remember someone at school, I think maybe mentioned they had it. I didn't know what it was and didn't really. And now I know how serious it is. She used to lie on her bed with a hot water bottle screaming when she had a period. And I think we all thought she was a bit of a drama queen. Isn't that awful? Because we didn't understand what it was. We'd never heard of it. We're like, oh, God, you know, I won't say her name. But like, and now I'm like, yeah, I've interviewed people recently who can't work. They're bedridden. I mean, it's like screaming in pain for most of the month. And then there might be a couple of days respite. So it's a big problem. Women being shushed. And I also think if you tell people your dirty bits, the sadness, the insecurity, the like, I lost this job or I am jealous today of that person or I feel like a bit of a loser right now. All of that stuff, along with the celebratory, I look great in this outfit, I'm having a fab day. It gives people permission to also give you their stuff and their reality. Whereas if you're this perfect, gorgeous, successful person, always portray that. There's no space for anyone else to be messy. That's so true. And I was really not surprised, actually, because I think, you know, how we present to the world is always different from how we really are. But I was so fascinated. As it should be. As it should be. Yeah, there's a level of a professionalism. I don't go to work and go, guys, I'm having a bad day. You know, I turn up on time, ready to work. And that's how it should be. Of course, we must do that. Absolutely. But it's different from three in the morning when I'm like, oh, shit, fuck, my life's falling apart. Exactly. And when I was researching this, you said on quite a few podcasts that I was listening to you on, I'm riddled with self-doubt. And I was wondering about that because I think so many people like me who have watched you over the years, you wouldn't expect that of you. And I know that everyone listening, I feel like that most days. And I, first of all, I want to thank you for saying that because I think the more successful, confident women like you that we can hear saying that, it normalizes it. You really feel that. What riddled with self-doubt? I look at you now, I'm like, you're beautiful and articulate and obviously really smart and you've got this great podcast. Like, do you think 
coaching anyone. No. And I have coached. I've had such a privilege of coaching. I cannot tell you the level of woman that I've been able to coach and connect with on confidence and, you know, motherhood. Every single one has felt the same. I feel like I'm about to get caught out. I don't feel good enough. I feel like everyone has got it sorted apart from me. And these are like CEOs of like global organizations. Is it one of those things where it's just part of the human condition and we should just accept it and just acknowledge it? Or are there techniques and tricks that you can do to, I mean, I've got my own little spell book of things, but what from you, a professional coach, how would you help a woman who comes to you? I think it's both. I think it is part of the human condition. 100% is to question ourselves and doubt ourselves. But I think, you know, what really happens is that throughout our early years, so we know that your beliefs about yourself get set up, don't they, in in your early years. And I think that's also a time when, and I know this, and you know this from having young kids, that's also a time when it's so hard not to, you're so annoying, you know, can't you just be quiet for a moment? Why don't you just do what I'm asking of you? And all those things were said to me and they all have been said to you. And I'm sure everyone listening, because that is just the nature of it. So I think we come through into adulthood with these beliefs, like I can't be too loud because I'm annoying. You know, I went to an all girls school. I was so confident when I showed up at that school and I left a shell of myself. Was that teachers or people? People really. My experience of all girls school, it's not universal, of course, was really hard. So I think we pick up, it's almost like, you know, those things in autumn that stick to you. What are they called? They're like fuzzy balls. Fuzzy balls. Cats are covered in them all constantly. The fuzzy balls, they stick to you. You can't take them off. And that's, I think what we have is like, I can't be too loud. I can't be too this. I have to fit in. I have to please to get love. And we all have, I think, different degrees of that. What I do notice is the more high functioning and successful the woman, the more of those she actually has. Okay, well, this is a chicken and egg question. Do you find that, because I'm just thinking of one of the most successful people that I know, yeah, so it's like on the outside is super confident, absolutely infallible, like perfect, but behind closed doors in the middle of the night, you know, worried, you know, trying to prove something. Is that the marker? Is that why they're successful? Do you see what I'm saying? Is that fuel? Whereas if someone wasn't that, someone didn't worry that much or care, maybe they wouldn't be as motivated to prove the world that they were the best. I don't know is the truth. Like if I sat with her, I'd be able to uncover it, I think, quite quickly. I think everyone's different, but I think without a doubt, if I look at my life, what drove definitely me in my 20s was not feeling good enough. And I needed all these things, all these external things to compensate for that. I think when you get to that place of feeling more okay as you are like I'm an okay person I'm not going to be the best I'm not going to but I'm okay in my heart I think I had a fear that if I felt like I was enough it would stop me being ambitious but the opposite has happened feeling that security in myself has made me more able to take risks yeah I think my magic wand has been not taking everything so seriously like if there's an email that would trouble me. You know, if there was a difficult email that I had to ask for something or if I've tried to release, like step away from the seriousness of it and just press send. And I do that all the way through the day. I literally just, I'll just press send. Okay. So and so, I'm afraid I can't make it. Send. I remember one of my colleagues, a, a woman who ran the production company that I worked for a lot, calling me and saying, you're a nightmare to get hold of. You've got to sort this out because she was like, you just disappeared. And I was like, I said to her, I was like, I tell you what it is. I get terrified when my phone goes. Terrified. Like it's going to be bad news or I'm not going to be able to cope with it. So now I'm much better. Now I de-dramatize my life, which is a really helpful technique. Like it just doesn't matter. As long as it's nothing about the kids, really how bad can it be? I think so many people will relate to that. Also, I think, you know, as mums and particularly mums of like, you know, mine are three or seven hours, I was telling you, I think it's so easy to get so overloaded with just the mental load to then have to reply to a difficult email or, you know, dive into a family WhatsApp chat where there might be some drama going on. Sometimes it can feel like I just can't quite face it. And then you're right. But actually what I learned, and I think what you're talking to is actually the avoidance costs me more than just leaning into it. That's the thing. It's like, you know, the whole rip it off like a plaster. That has been one of my favorite things about getting older. I think the ability to rip things off like a plaster, just go, fuck it, just do it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be perfect. Just has to be done. 
And also, I'm not responsible for their reaction. I'm responsible to be fair and truthful. The only thing that I have to make sure I do every day with my interaction with people is to be fair and truthful. It's so true. Unless they're an absolute nightmarish person, in which case you are allowed to lie, get yourself away from them as quickly as possible, is what I've realised. Don't set the bomb off and get the hell out of there. Yeah, you've got to have some boundaries. My only disclaimer for truthful and direct. So many people listening will resonate with that sort of people pleasing energy like if I say this are they going to think that or that person didn't smile at me on the school run oh my god was it because I didn't reply or did I reply to the wrong when I've been researching you I get the feeling that you used to be in that place quite a lot and now you're not tell me how you changed it oh my god so yes hugely sometimes still but much much less but I mean off the scale I mean my friends take the piss out of me so much like no one hates being told off more than me. I was the best person to be naughty with at school. I went to an all-girls boarding school, but it was a nice one. I had That actually gave me confidence. So I'm so sad that you had an awful time. It, it's such a formative time in your life. It's seven years and it really impacts you. So I'm sure that some of those fuzzy balls are from that. So yeah, I was a massive people pleaser, but I just never got caught. You know, If you wanted to go and have a cigarette down at the sports field, take Cherry because she'll know the rotor of the matrons. I'm like a guard dog. It was the same at university. I remember being late for one of the lectures at university, and the rule was if you were late, even for one minute, you had to stand outside. Oh, my God, that is brutal. Really? You weren't allowed in. And I remember turning up, and there was this little glass window, and they looked at me. I mean, they knew me enough to know that I hate being told off. It was such a good issue. They could see my face like popping up in the window going, oh, like such a loser. Like I can be cool, but not in this area. I'm so... It's almost like a hypervigilance, isn't it? Where did it come from? I had a lovely but quite scary, unpredictable dad. And I never knew why he was cross or moody. And it was quite regular. And there was a lot of like silent treatment type vibe. So it's very toxic and when you're little you don't understand it so I used to try and constantly be working out like what mood are you in what's happened have I done something have I said something and making sure that I never did or say anything to poke it or to make it worse so behaving perfectly as much as possible all the time very acutely aware of other people's energy almost to the point where when I was little I such a dick when I was little I thought I had a superpower <laughs> in a way you did. And it's not surprising to me that you went on to do what you do because the skill of what you do is in being able to know where someone's at and to be able to ask a question. And I imagine you're incredible. I know you are. I've watched you do it. You're incredible at then asking the next question to even help them close up if you're feeling like they're too vulnerable or open up if you can sense they can go there. Or a lovely thing to observe because sometimes I think, what the hell do I even do? I had a real crisis of confidence when I hit 40 partly because of people you know a person let's just say I'm going to dance over that and then partly I think because you know it's 40s is I found it a very reflective time and not helped by the influence of a certain human being I just kind of felt like I was a big loser and I what have I even done what am I even doing with my life like I'm not an expert in anything I'm not and I remember saying that to someone and they looked at me and I said, I really, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dick. They were like, you're an interviewer. That's what you do. And you're good at it. And I was like, no, I, I mean, what, what is he, what is that? But I, I can't tell you. So I'd been feeling like that probably for, I mean, a good long while before I admitted it to anyone. And just, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you go, the hell am I doing with my life? And I just forgot that I had this skill set. So actually, I actually can't tell you how much that means to me that you've observed that. That's really kind. Thank you. Because I can do things. It's just, they're quite hard to grasp. You know, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a numbers. I have letters after my name, but I've got two observations on that. The first one is that I think it's a truism of life that the things that come easily and naturally to us, we decide don't have as much value as perhaps the things that we have to work really hard for. And I think because it comes naturally to you, I suspect you're like, that's not valuable. Whereas everyone observing you can see how valuable it is. 
I think the other thing about what you do, and to some extent maybe being a podcast host, is that it's so invisible, the skill of it. It's so invisible. Like so many people think, oh, it must be easy hosting a podcast. Actually, it's a real skill to meet someone for the first time. Like, you know, you meet someone for the first time, there's cameras there. You have to make them feel comfortable within seconds and then get them to open up to you. Like that is really invaluable. But I think because it's invisible and when you're good at it, it just looks easy. That's so true. Oh my God. Just so wise. I really am like eating this all up with a spoon. I'm really loving this chat. So I love filming because there are days that are really, really hard. And I'm filming with someone who doesn't want to be filmed with, you know, a farmer in Norfolk and they're bored and they've been pushed in front of a camera. And I think, no, I'm going to win you. You are going to love me by the end of the day. You're going to wish that we never left. I'm going to make this the funnest thing. And I'll ask them about their wife and their kids. And they'll be like, oh, I'm in the middle of a divorce. And I'll be like, tell me everything, Jeff. So, you know, it's all the bits in between the films. So by the time we get to have to talk to Brussels Sprouts, we're like best friends. And then sometimes I'll get a piece to camera and I'll go, I'll be like, oh no, I can totally do this better. And it just comes to me like this divine inspiration and the feeling that I get. And I wish I could put that on a bottle for those days when I feel like I'm such a loser, that feeling of, oh my God, I did that really, really well. And I don't know if everyone on the planet could have just stepped in my shoes. Actually, I think that I really bought something great to that day. I really wish I could put that into like a little pill. And then when those days when I just think I'm such a loser, what am I even doing? It's important to be reminded of those little moments, isn't it? hundred percent. Do you know what? When I was early in my career, you talked about this as well. This guy that sort of intervened with you and taught you about manifesting. I had someone who intervened with me and could see maybe that I had some skill and some talents, but I was so low in confidence. She said to me, she said, every time you get an email that says you did a great job on that, or every time you're in a meeting and someone says, Zoe, you did such a good job of hosting that meeting. This is I was in corporate life. She said, I want you to write it down or print the email and I want you to keep it in a file. And I was like, okay. So, oh my gosh, I've got a file like huge. And still to this day, like if a podcast guest sends me an email saying, that was a really great interview. I print it and I put it in so that when I have a wobble, I go back to that file and I haven't got it here. Otherwise I'd hold it up, but I go back to it. I call it a little brag file because we have like so many wobbles affected by my cycle, by what's going on in life. And it's like, can I remember that I know what I'm doing and I can do stuff? That is such a brilliant idea. It's a gift. I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that because I think Oh, it's just a lovely thing to do. I'm going to get my daughter to do that, actually. I mean, I keep all the kids, like, certificates and everything like that and, you know, reports and stuff. But I think that's a really lovely, important practice to go through. And I do think part of my slight kind of, what I say, midlife crisis? Yeah, maybe. Bit of a personal questioning. Um, was hormonal a bit. I think that my hormones have changed. And I believe, I mean, I haven't had a test, but I believe that I probably started my perimenopause because also I was making a program for channel five called women's health, breaking the taboos. And it was a four episode series on like endometriosis. I learned so much uh, menopause, perimenopause. But even though I was making that show, I was going through this thing where I was waking up at four in the morning, every single, well, not started off a few times with like a panic attack. Probably not a panic attack, but it was, I was breathless. It was like palpitations and thinking that I was such a mess. And it was, so it wasn't. Like I don't have, I'm really careful with money. My friendships have made more my friends know that I adore them. I don't have loads, but I, the ones I do have, I'm devoted to them. Like my family loves me. I love, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm like, my kids love me. I'm fine. But for about two years, actually, I had that. And then I was making this program and even though, and they were getting really bad at that point, they were like, they were all the time, all the time. It was affecting my work. I was losing concentration because I was so tired. I was awful, really anxious. And then it would bleed into the days. And I was anxious in the days as well for no reason whatsoever. Anyway, so I was making the show, interviewing all of these experts. And I didn't, even then I didn't put two and two together. And I think about all these women who don't get to do what I do and like how on earth do they put that? picture together and at the end of one of the interviews I said to the gynecologist I said can I just have you for just a couple of minutes 
I said, I am going through this thing and it's getting quite acute now. It's getting quite bad. I think I had cried for the first time about it in bed. And they said, yeah, it's probably progesterone. You probably have a bit of a progesterone depletion. They said, I can give you some supplements. And, and I've actually recently taken other supplements and lifestyle changes, really militant about my bedtime routine, winding down telling myself something good and positive so my subconscious can be calm and I can end a day on a really, because you I didn't really, you know, your, your subconscious is like your computer. So if you go to bed freaking out, then you'll probably wake up like that. So I made some changes. White wine is the devil for me <laughs> and they've calmed down. I get them every so often, but they've calmed down. But it took me such a long time to realize it was hormonal. But do you remember, we've only really been talking about menopause and hormones in the last couple of years, thanks to people like Mariella Frostrup and Davina. 100%. And I always think about the women, you know, gosh, before this moment, going through that, like I think about my mum and I remember noticing a change in my mum, and it was like a sort of whispered, oh, I've got, I'm going through the change. It was a whispered, shameful thing, wasn't it? And now to understand, you know, I had Dr. Louise Newson, who's amazing on the podcast. And to understand, like you're experiencing the anxiety that can come with it, the loss of confidence. Like I can't remember the percentage, but a significant amount of women have to leave their careers. One in four, I think one in four seriously consider it, or maybe it's one in four actually leave. And it costs the economy millions billions because you think about all of that knowledge a it costs a fortune to replace someone i think it costs on average thirty thousand pounds to replace someone of a medium-sized salary you lose all of that wisdom all of that calm all of that balance all of that measured response all of that industry knowledge like oh i know jeff and i know susan they don't get on so let's not put them in a room it's gone and to think if that woman had just been given some supplements or take hrt they could continue working. And once you leave the workforce, I don't know if people ever go back in, Zoe. I think you come from the corporate. It's so fast paced. How do you get back in? You're right, because it's as those women hit that age that they do have that incredible experience and perhaps they are more senior. And I think it absolutely plays into the amount of women that we have on boards and all of that. And I think that conversation is changing now and it's being really understood and lots of organizations are putting in menopause support and it's incredible. But also, you know, for me, if I think about myself in a young corporate, I was what, 23, there were no women on the board. And who knows, maybe that's because they'd all were going through this unsupported without knowing what it was and, and had to leave their careers. What did you do in the corporate world and when did you leave and why did you leave? I did marketing so for 13 years in corporates and I left around motherhood. So I knew that I wanted to be a mum. And when I looked at the senior women who were also mothers, I thought I don't want that because I could see that the system was just absolutely rigged against them. You know, everything that Anna Whitehouse talks about, I could see that. And I thought I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to try and craft a little career for myself before I become a mum. So I started consulting and it was good. But then when I actually became a mum and in that first year, I took a year to be at home. It really radicalized me around a lot of the content in motherhood just really frustrated me. And I couldn't see anyone talking to my experience as a woman. What happens to a woman when she becomes a mother? That just fascinated me. I couldn't see anyone talking about it in the way that I wanted to be. I didn't drink. I've been sober 10 years. So a lot of the conversation when I joined was about drinking and hurrah for gin was like the number one book and the wine culture. And I was like, I was like, I get that. I completely get it, but I just can't join in. Like I, I just can't join in because I don't drink. So I basically moaned about it a lot to a lot of people. And someone one day, I think to shut me up was like, why don't you do something then? And I was like, okay, I will. And that's become this. Thanks to this week's sponsor, AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. So AG1 replaces your multivit, your probiotic and more in one simple drinkable habit. It is so quick, honestly. It takes me two minutes to mix and drink. I have it as I am giving the girls their porridge for breakfast. It tastes really nice and it helps my energy to stay high all the way through to bedtime. So we all know how busy we are, don't we? So if you are looking for a way to take care of yourself that is quick 
and easy, then you need to try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. All you need to do is go to drinkag1.com slash motherkind. That is drinkag1.com slash motherkind to give it a try. When you said, you know, that the conversation wasn't appealing, like, did you feel it wasn't focused on the experience of the mum? Is it more about all the baby shit? Exactly. Yeah. Because I was okay with, you know, changing the nappies and, you know, breastfeeding was a nightmare, but it was more what was happening to me because I'd got into therapy for a decade prior and I'd done loads of work on taking those sticky balls off on my perfectionism and my people pleasing and all of that. But it all came back like louder than ever. And I was like, what's happening? I now know this word matrescence, which is like the becoming of a mother and it all happens but I didn't know that word so I started reading like I'm such a reader so I started reading not parenting books because I felt like it was insane to me how these parenting books talk about you know and doing this and doing that but not referencing my emotional state I was like the equation does not work it enraged me I was like how can you talk about setting a boundary with a toddler when you know you're a chronic people pleaser it doesn't make any sense what was your training and what kind of therapist are you So I trained in transformational coaching. It's really, really good. Yeah, it's with an organization called Mindful Talent. I think that's exactly what I've been looking for. I'm doing some interesting work at the moment with a series of people and I feel like I want to, yeah, I want to offer something like that. The thing is with doing coach training is that because you get so much coaching, it's like a double win. Like you absolutely change and transform because you're getting so much coaching because you're all coaching each other and it's like, it's quite intense, but also you're learning all of these tools and systems and, oh my gosh, this is the best thing I've ever done. I've been in therapy for a really long, my dad was incredibly unwell. I told you that he was a wonderful man, but also quite challenging throughout my life. When I was 30 and I was pregnant with my daughter, he really popped if you know he really it was bad and I was pregnant and I moved home to kind of help my mum and I checked myself into therapy because I thought the level of cortisol in my body right now is not healthy like I was so terrified so I checked myself into therapy luckily I found the most incredible I had to try two the first one was awful off in the way off in the way Got out. I did four sessions, cried in my car after every single one. I was like, I'm not sure this is how it's supposed to work. <laughs> she literally didn't speak to me, Zoe. Oh, yeah. See, I don't get on with psychotherapy like that either. She didn't speak. And I was at my most vulnerable state. My, my dad had gone completely, completely like blown his top. Everything that I knew was coming while I was a child happened, like, and worse. So I was like, so vulnerable. I was pregnant. I just started this new wild job, you know, I was then presenting and I was like, oh, what's going on? Sat in front of her and she just crossed her legs and just stared at me. And I went, I don't think I know how this works. She just shrugged her shoulders at me. And I was like, and we sat there in silence and then I cried and she didn't say anything. She didn't offer me words of comfort. And then I talked for a bit and then I left. And that was the session. But did that four times. No, I don't like that type of therapy at all. Some people love it. I hate it. It's so not for me. And I found um, a therapist who's just utterly wonderful. She knows when to just let there be silence. She knows when to. She also has the atmosphere of very, very loving atmosphere. So you feel very, you feel very held. Well, that's the skill of it. If you do coach training, you spend the first couple of months really learning how to do that. Hold the space for someone and make someone else yeah. hold the space. It's called space holding. Yeah, you learn. It's just the best. And the best thing is that I do it with my kids and it is unbelievable. So there's this model that you learn about in coach training, which is that the level of presence that the listener brings directly impacts the level of thinking for the other person. If you can really sit and be present with someone, as in you're not thinking, what am I going to say next? How am I going to fix this? If you can actually be present with them, it impacts their thinking. So they'll go, oh my gosh, I'd never thought of that idea before. Oh my God, I'd never thought of it that way. You haven't said a word. You're just completely present with them. That's holding space. That is exactly what my therapist does. Yeah, that's holding space. And it's such a skill. That is so interesting. I've never understood that before. I've met that articulateness 
But if she sees I'm stuck, she'll help me out of a bind. So I never feel scared about silence because I know that she's got me. She's got my back. But then sometimes she's, there's a window and I've, oh my God, I have stared out that window. I've been seeing her for 12 years. I mean, on and off, but a lot of on. Because I'm seeing her because I wanted my daughter to not be cooked alive by adrenaline and cortisol while she was inside me. And then after that, when she came out, I just carried on seeing her. And also my dad was still not in a good place. So that went on for years. So I carried on seeing her. And then I got a divorce. So I carried on seeing her because she helped me through that. She helped me deal with everything to do with that and how to hold the children, hold them through that. And so then it's like, suddenly it's like, wow, I've been doing therapy for like nine years. Then I did pause because this year has thrown some really, really difficult challenges at me. There's been some incredibly difficult things still this year. I checked myself back in and it's just amazing because she's got this body. Oh yeah. And I've also stayed with her because I wanted to get rid of the stupid obsession with being thin and my body. And I remember saying to her, I was like, do you know, I spent so long, actually we dealt with this relatively early on in our time to go. I said, do you know, I spent so long thinking about what I'm going to eat and the size of my body and how to lose weight that I actually don't know what I'm going to think about if we get rid of it. I don't know who I am. It's such a big part of my personality, such a big part of what I think about. She said, don't worry, don't worry. You will think of other things to think about. And she was right. She was amazing. She helped me get free of that. It's like, you know, that little private prison that no one knows is going on in your brain. I think so many people listening will relate to that. Just that low level obsession. How did you free yourself from that? Are you free from it? Spending tens of thousands of pounds. I worked out how much I'd spent and it was a lot. But I'm really proud of myself because I spent that money. I did spend that money. I'm, I'm glad I invested it in that now. How did I get free of it? Do you know, manifesting really helped me. I mean, my therapist helped me loads. We talked about where it come from. And I think, yeah, it's really hard to pinpoint because it's so incremental when it's therapy. Like, you know, I committed to that process. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of conversations where each, you know, the fuzzballs. So mine, you know, it'll be a thousand of them on one arm and she helped me just pick them off one by one, one by one. It's, you know, the messages you've been fed and the meaninglessness of it. And and also, you know, I, I actually really, I'm happy, generally I'm a very happy disposition. I'm really lucky to say. So I choose life. Like I want to feel good and healthy and happy. And, you know, I, I choose that. So I'm very good client. <laughs> Let's just say that. Very, I always want homework to do before I leave. I'm such a goody two-shoes. So, you know, when I want to do something, I will really give it my all. And manifesting has really helped me because it's like reprogramming your brain. Some people, when they manifest, it can be quite super, super spiritual. I am a spiritual person, but manifesting for me is actually more psychological trick. That's what it is. And manifesting has got some quite bad baggage with it. So when you say I manifest people like, oh God, I bet you howl at the moon, you've got crystals. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not actually how I do it. So I have a book, big green book, and I write in it. I should have been rubbish at doing it recently, but basically I write it every day. And I set out what's going to happen in the day or I do it last thing at night which is my favorite time to do it and I tell myself what the day ahead is going to be like and I write it all in the present and what I'm doing is I am creating my reality because what we are is a stream of consciousness in this weird fleshy blob vehicle thing that we call a body but really our life is in our heads so if you can control that you can shift your reality even though that sounds really wacky it's absolutely true and it's science if you go out into the world and you think the day is going to be rubbish and awful, it'll reflect back to you. So I write things like, so when I was trying to get rid of my body ridiculousness, it's not ridiculous because I know lots of people, but when I was trying to get rid of that narrative, I wrote down every single day, I adore my body. I love my body. I'm grateful for my body. I'm thankful for my body. I'm, my body is healthy and happy. I'm free from those negative thoughts. You know, and I wrote those religiously for like five years. And I remember waking up and then it gets less and less and less because other things become more important and that's when you know it's working because I don't think about my body all the time you know I eat food and I exercise and then I just get on with my day so my manifesting doesn't I don't need to write that every so often it flares up my manifesting is different things I have a great day I know who I am you know I'm focused and calm and confident I'm articulate in the meeting today 
write it in the present tense. I'm so thankful for things throughout the day. And I take time to notice all the little things throughout the day. And I go to bed feeling happy and content. That's such a nice one. And it's so true because I remember learning this and it blew my mind that your brain doesn't know the difference between you saying that and you actually feeling and experiencing that. So it's just, I thought the same. That's not true. It's true. They've shown it in brain images. You can show it. People who actually feel happy and people who are thinking about being happy, the brain lights up in the same way. So it's like, I just wish we were taught this when we were younger because it makes so much sense, doesn't it, to decide, you know, today I am going to be confident and empowered. And I think it gets so many eye rolls because it seems so simple, but it does really work. It really works. It really, really works. And I think, again, when people think about manifesting, they're like, oh, you know, it's the Porsche and it's the house. I'm like, yeah, you know, go for that. It certainly won't hurt your chances of achieving and being successful. But for me, the power is in how you're feeling about yourself and how you feel about the day. Yeah, I have to say there have been some lots of times when I've written down wild things like, I get that promotion, I get that contract. I'm thankful that this money comes through the door. I mean, if it doesn't, well, it doesn't matter. I've wasted a tiny bit of ink from a pen. And But I tell you, some wild things have happened. And I'm almost sure that's because of the way I've behaved during the day or something has happened. And if there is a bit of like cosmos to it, well, fine, it's just the magic of the universe. But mostly it's about controlling my subconscious. It runs the show. Our conscious self really is there for the ride, but our subconscious self, it's like, oh no, I'm just not the kind of person who likes parties. So every time you go to a party or a networking event, you know, you're nervous and you don't know, you can undo that. It's amazing the power you have to undo that. I have a wonderful time this evening. I ask great questions. I meet someone interesting. I listen closely. It will change your evening and change the reality of your evening. I'm free from debt. I'm free from debt. I'm free from debt. You behave differently with your money. You'll change. I have savings. I'm good with money. I always try and tell women, the amount of women that just go, I'm rubbish with money. No, you've got to be really, really, really careful with what you put after the words I am. Be militant about it. I am, because your subconscious is listening all the time. I'm rubbish with money. No, you will be rubbish with money. I'm always late. Are you? You don't have to be. I'm on time. I'm organized and I'm great with money. I'm not scared of money. I love money. All of that stuff. God, it's so powerful. It changes your life. It really does. And it is so powerful because what we believe about ourselves is really what we create in this world. As you say, you know, that example about going out, if you say, I'm going to have a rubbish night, no one's going to talk to me, your body language is smaller. You are making yourself seem invisible. You're nervous. And then, of course, you don't have a good night. So then it perpetuates it, doesn't it? See, I knew I wouldn't have a good night. And in some ways, it's really brave to do what you and I are talking about because it's quite comfortable to be like, oh, no, that's not for me. I could never do that. There's a comfort in that familiar smallness and fear. And it does take a bit of courage, doesn't it? So I think starting small is really important as well. Start small. Why do you think there is a fear of asking for more going bigger? Where does that come from? I think it comes down to self-worth and being seen because the way that our brains are wired, you know, our brain developed when we were surrounded by 50 people. And if there were more than 50 people in the group, we would break off and go into another group. So in a way, and we haven't got a new brain since then, it's exactly the same brain. So I think when we talk about some of the things that we might want to be like, you know, having more than perhaps anyone in our family has had generationally, you know, more money or more freedom or more joy, or as a woman and a mother actually feeling empowered I never saw that down my female line. I don't know if you did. I never saw that. So in a way, it feels really scary to pioneer something like that. And a lot of your wiring will be to stay the same and stay small. The brain really wants you to stay the same because the brain isn't interested in your happiness at all. The brain is interested in it being the same because that's the most efficient, right? Homeostasis it's called. So when you decide I'm going to do something differently, your brain will lob a ton of resistance at you. You can't stop podcast. This is what I heard. You can't stop podcast from my own head. That's ridiculous. Everyone will laugh at you. But I knew that was just my brain wanting me to stay in the same place. That's why it's so hard. You have to break through that resistance. 
You have to break through that resistance because it's going to be there. And I always say to my clients, expect it to be there. And actually, when you hit that resistance, it's a really good sign that you're going outside your comfort zone into your stretch zone, which is, again, like a really good coaching model that you'll learn if you do it. You are so interesting. I can't tell you. I'm literally eating this up with a spoon. This is so my jam. Yeah, no, I think that the fear of being different, I hadn't thought about it that way before. Like, God, that's really like tickled my brain. Yeah, because it's who am I, especially as women, like we have to think about what have we seen down our female line? What have we witnessed about women? Have we witnessed single mothers being abundant, creating the life? If we haven't, you're going to really rub up against, am I allowed to do this? Who am I to want this? No one else is. And it's all subconscious, like you said, Cherry. You're not consciously thinking that, but it's in your computer program. I think this is a different song, but in the same album. One of the things in manifesting is is called self-limiting beliefs. And some of the work that I do with the women that I talk to is noticing where they pop up. They can really direct what you want to manifest. So I would love to own, I have, I got one in, you know, I say it in the present tense, I'd love to live by the sea. Oh, I live by the sea. Do you? Where do you live? Dorset. Oh, magic. Whereabouts? Bournemouth area. Oh my God. So fun. So I, I will absolutely live by the sea at one stage, but I remember for a long, long time, not even allowing myself to voice that because it's felt so unachievable. So that's one of the things I've started writing. I'm right, you know, I write, I live by the sea. I have a beautiful house by the sea and it's so fun. And like, also I'd love to learn how to sail. I'd love a boat. I've wanted to learn to sail since I was 10. I went on a sailing course in Scotland with Kate Vaughan Arbuckle and it was rainy and cold and horrible. I loved the sailing so much and I've wanted to do it ever since, but I've always thought it's for people, you know, super rich, I don't live by the sea. I'm never going to do it. That's not something that I could do. It's really technical. It's really hard. You know, what it's really dangerous. All of these editing, are constantly editing myself out of it. There's actually no good reason why I can't achieve all of those things. But I'm now, but since I've been writing those things down, I'm now having conversations with people about boats left, right and centre. Don't you always think those things that have been with us for a long time, like those things that just won't go away, there's almost like you have to. There's obviously something bigger there. I don't know. It'd be so amazing to see what happens. Oh my God. Hilarious. Imagine what I'd really like to do is to be, this is what I actually think I want to be. I want to be in a sailing team. (gasps) Oh my God. That'd be so good. How cool would that be? Racing along and you've got a team and there's a finish. You need to come down here. There's loads of sailing teams around here. Maybe you and I should go out for dinner. I'm just going to say, I'm just asking you out on a date is what I'm really doing. I'm going to say yes. Great. (laughs) We should. Oh my gosh. I've loved this conversation and it's always so incredible when you don't know someone and then, you know, you connect and I feel really connected to you and I just really appreciate your honesty because I think like we were saying, you know, it's that honesty that unlocks the honesty in others. And I just, I so appreciate it. So thank you so much. You're so smart. I love chatting to you. I bet your clients absolutely love you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's a gift, isn't it? Being able to sit with someone. Well, you get it with what you do as well with your manifesting is seeing someone change in front of your eyes. Oh my God, it's the best feeling. It's like the most beautiful thing in the world. And to think that that's something you can do and earn money from it. You know, it's like, cool. That's a really cool thing. A good life choice. It is very cool. I always ask this question at the end, which is if you could give one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would it be? And why? Well, we've talked about mother pucker, haven't we? It's a very boring answer, I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it for her. Drastically cheaper childcare. And I'm banging that little drum on behalf of Anna, who's done so much amazing work. She's unbelievable, isn't she? She's a phenomenal human being. She also happens to be one of the nicest human beings on the planet. She's a magic person because it makes all the difference. I was so lucky because just at the point where I started to earn a bit of money, I had children and I could just about afford it. But, you know, after therapy, 
and childcare. I had zero disposable income. I had no savings. I didn't buy nice things. And I think people were like, oh, you're on the telly. You must be rich. No, no, I'm in therapy and I have got childcare. And so that's everything. And also the household expenses, you know, mortgage bills, all of that. There's zero left over, zero, which is bonkers because I was getting paid enough that I really should have had some savings. I really should have been able to save money. I really should have been able to do like nice things. But childcare is just like robbery. Now, I'm not saying that people who do childcare should not be paid a good wage, of course, but women contribute so much to the economy. We're social architects. We are the beating heart of society. You know, you need us. The world needs us in so many ways. Yeah, cheaper childcare. Boring answer, but oh, I really mean it. It's not boring because it's like almost like that hygiene factor. So if we had that, we could unlock so much of what you and I have been talking about. It gets so much easier to go for what you want and what you think you deserve when you've got those basics, right? Childcare is a basic, but for so many, it's completely limiting and bankrupting. It's horrific. It's horrific. Are you still doing your course with Nat? Yes. We, well, we're taking a break at the moment. Tell people where they can find it when you start again. We're pausing, so I, I can't, unfortunately. But I do encourage people, if we do it again, please sign on. I'm not saying that because we want the money, because we don't charge very much considering how much work we put into it. But it is awesome with the things we've seen people do and change and pivot and the magic people create in their life when they've got these tools. And, you know, come and do our course, yes, but if not just get a book and start. Now, some of them are a bit wacky. Have you got a favorite book that you could recommend? I love um, a huge pinch of salt. You've got to take it with a huge pinch of salt. It's by Esther and Jeremy Hicks. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) That was my gateway drug into manifesting, but it's not for everyone. For me, when I listen to that, I just have to ignore that she says that she's channeling this voice from the other side. And then I can really engage with it. And I think it's brilliant. It's very thorough, which is what I like about it. The book is good and it has a question and answer section. She's very thorough about, and you know what it is? It's energy manipulation. That's what it is. Simple as that. And anyone thinks, oh, that's woo-woo. I'm like, well, everything is energy, Jeff. It's not that woo-woo. Everything is energy, right? It's actually, it's psychology and quantum physics all together in one. It's fascinating. It's kind of like learning magic. I'll put a link to it in the show notes because I think people will want to go and and check it out. Well, listen, this has been a joy and I can't wait for our date. So thank you so much. Can we go somewhere by the sea? Can we eat somewhere with you? Yeah. Come and see me. It's only a couple of hours from London. I'm thrilled about this. I'm actually going to do it and you're going to be so weirded out by me turning up. No, I won't. (laughs) Well, Cherry, thank you so much. Pleasure. Look, you can come on my boat when I have a boat. I'll be on your sailing team. Um, I've loved this. You're so smart. What a delight. What a treat to have your time and talk to you. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.